Good morning. Good to see you again. I hope I will see you next Sunday, but we just don't know. We're kind of living on the cusp of something that has uh, unknown written all over it, so we're kind of learning to go with the flow. What seemed unthinkable just a few weeks ago is now very thinkable. And so we would just express our appreciation to you for your patience and your cooperation. May it continue. Our lesson today is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, living well when all's not well. Seems to fit, doesn't it? Life is fluid. Recent events suggest this. Adjustments made last week, last Sunday morning, have been adjusted this week already. And we don't know about next. We're not done. Many of us have been adjusting our behaviors lately. Some of us came to church today with the problem of extreme dryness of hands. I mean, my hands have never been this dry before. We are really washing up a storm. We're buying things, some of us things that normally perhaps we didn't buy or we didn't buy very often. We were at Shoppers the other day and we came home with some hand wipes. We don't buy hand wipes very often, and these days you're lucky if you can actually find some to buy. We're not eating out as much. You drive by some of the restaurants in Red Deer, and their parking lots are pretty sparse. Feel sorry for people who own those restaurants. Even our church calendar is changing. You thought we were having soup and bun at the end of the month. Looks like we're not. Like I say, life is fluid. And if you've been following social media, you will know that there are a lot of things that have been canceled. Canadian Parliament has been canceled. Base camp at Mount Everest is canceled. Anybody who was planning on reaching the summit this month, not going to happen. The Boston Marathon. Heather, you're kind of our resident runner. You won't be able to do that this year. The Boston Marathon has never been shut down before. Disneyland. Ah, no big deal for some of us. The CN Tower. And then, of course, Balmoral's own Ladies' Retreat. Who would ever have thought that that would happen? And that's sandwiched between the closure of the CN Tower on my list and the NBA, NHL, and Major League Ball. And then March Madness. Don Falk, I think, I don't see him here today, but he can explain to you what March Madness is. Pretty important event down in the States, and that's been canceled as well. These are events that are are generally regarded as so solid that you can you could mark your, your, your calendar by them. And they have just been swept aside. In 2 Corinthians, we've been learning about the work of Paul, but not only Paul, also his colleagues. You see the word we a lot in 2 Corinthians. Paul was not a lone ranger. He didn't operate by himself. He was part of a team. And so he references the work of his colleagues at well. Their, their work was pretty fluid. They had to make plans on the fly. Now, you do that a lot when you're facing persecution, and they certainly did. They had to adapt depending upon the mood of their audience. Roughed up in one town, jailed in the next. Heroes to one group, bums to the other. Definitely not boring work. Let's read our passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 3, and today I'm reading from the New Living Translation. We live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us, and no one will find fault with our ministry. 
In everything we do, he writes, we show that we are true ministers or agents of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We have been beaten, been put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, and gone without food. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness by the Holy Spirit within us and by our sincere love. We faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. We are honest, but they call us impostors. We are ignored even though we are well known. We live close to death, but we are still active. We have been beaten, but we have not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. For much of 2 Corinthians, Paul has been defending their role in the mission of God. They claim to be ambassadors for Christ, representatives of Jesus. But not everybody agreed. Not everybody was willing to accept their claim. Some thought Paul was a flake. Others that he was a fraud. And that's why he was burdened by the concern of how best to convince people that they were the real deal. Paul realized that if their opponents could discredit them, the messengers, then they could easily dismiss their message. And so in order to elevate his message, he opens up their resume, their collective resume, to highlight their exceptional conduct, often while under duress. How do you convince people that you're a God-sent messenger with a God-given message? That's kind of the challenge that many of us face as we rub shoulders with family and friends who may not be so inclined towards the Christian message. Well, that's the first piece in the passage in verses 3 and 4. And now we come to kind of the heart of it, verses 4 through 10. Time to put his cards on the table. As his certificate of authenticity, Paul will make three submissions. Number one, their endurance. He says, we put up with trouble galore. Verses 4 and 5. Secondly, their integrity. We pass the smell test. Verses 6 and 7. And thirdly, their consistency. In awkward and tense situations, we just keep on going. Verses 8 through 10. Why believe them? Why put your trust in their message? Why take their word for salvation? Paul's answer, simply, these men should commend our respect by their dedication and devotion, courage and conviction, show themselves to be a superior breed of humanity. The quality of these messengers ought to inspire confidence in their message. So let's consider these men. Who are they? What were they like? First of all, these guys knew trouble with a capital T, verses 4 and 5. One early Christian leader, a man who lived in the first century by the name of Chrysostom, described their lives as a blizzard of trouble. 
Uh, did he know Canadians would one day read that expression? That resonates with us. Their lives were a blizzard of trouble. Sometimes trouble brought them near death's door, like in Second Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul said they felt so vulnerable and unprotected, they despaired of life itself. We don't know exactly what it was, but whatever it was, it was bad. There were calamities. There were tight spots. There were beatings. Can you imagine? I mean, sometimes we complain about our loss of human rights. Anybody been beat up lately for being a Christian? Sometimes he was beat up by his own countrymen, the Jews, and sometimes by Romans. He did jail time, riots, hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, going without. They knew trouble. But a lot of people know trouble. The thing about these guys is that they patiently endured it. Did the person who introduced you to Jesus Christ tell you about the possibility of trouble in the Christian life? I'm pretty sure they talked to you about forgiveness. They talked to you about the blessing of reconciliation. They may have hyped the free gift of eternal life. But did they tell you that there could be trouble in this life? How about when we dedicate our children to God? Do we imagine a life like that for them? I mean, it's one thing for Johnny to come home from VBS and say, Mom and Dad, guess what? I became a Christian today. That's great. But when they come home from college at age 21 and say they want to give their lives away in foreign mission and live perhaps among a a Stone Age community and give their life away so that they can render their language into a grammar so that they can then translate the Bible and they can hear about God's free gift of eternal life. Are we as excited then? My friends, this is a fallen planet where disease and demons dwell and it's filled with fallen people and all that translates into trouble. How do we cope with our troubles? Can it be said of us that we patiently endure them? I know we all have trouble. I have trouble, you have trouble. Do we patiently endure them? Many, and some of us included, uh, succumb to cursing and swearing, fear and anxiety, but not Paul and his friends. They said trouble was God's instrument. They said, listen to this, trouble was God's way of rescuing them from self-reliance. How do you convince a person to stop leaning on themselves? by kicking out the props of whatever it is they've been resting on. And when you get rid of the props, then they have an opportunity to begin putting their faith in the living God. Trouble, he said, was God's way of nurturing faith in his power. Should one of us die because we're overwhelmed by trouble? Either because we're hit by a truck, we come down with a bad case of pneumonia, or maybe the coronavirus does us in. Believe it or not, that won't thwart God's purpose. God will one day do what my mom used to do for years. He will come and wake us up. He will come to the grave and wake us up. I often think of my mom when we were in junior high and high school. About 7.20 in the morning, I can still hear her coming down the steps to the room where my brother and I slept. And her 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 gesture was always the same. Boys, time to get up. Boys, time to get up. Well, no matter 
what trouble does to us, no matter what effect trouble has on us, one day God will come and wake us up. He will come and get us from the grave. That is our hope, and that is our confidence. Paul's second submission, remember he's calling his readers, take a serious look at me and my colleagues. He says, these guys embody goodness, verses 6 and 7. These are men who act with integrity, uncompromisingly. They went about their work with competence. They're squeaky clean. Boy, nowadays, amongst Christian leaders, that seems to be the exception to the rule. They are squeaky clean. It's obvious the Holy Spirit was at work in them. The fruit was unmistakably his, and it was superb. They were able to deal with all kinds of ministry situations with great tact and integrity. You know what it's like when you meet someone who's trustworthy? Somebody whose word is their bond, that kind of a person? When you meet somebody like that, it makes for great relationship because you're willing to go deep with them. They're just the kind of people that you can trust. And it advances the God cause because evil can thrive in a climate like that. This is the kind of armor that allows us to stand against the devil and darkness. The Holy Spirit wants to make us win some so that we can win some. I just made that up. The Holy Spirit wants to make us win some so that we can win some. These guys were like that. They embodied goodness. These are good men. Even if you didn't agree with everything that they said, these were good men. What were they like? They were men who knew trouble and patiently endured it. They embodied goodness. And finally, in verses 8 through 10, you can tell I've spent too much time in Southern California. They rode the wave life gave them. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what they were like. What life threw at them, they learned to deal with it. Verses 8 through 10. Paul lays this out in an intriguing way. First, he admits that life is a mixed bag. My wife's been telling me this for years. My wife's been telling me that most of us are a mixed bag. And they certainly encountered life that way, but they weren't deterred by it. Sometimes folks loved them. Sometimes folks love you. Sometimes folks hated them. And sometimes folks aren't too crazy about you, are they? Sometimes they were bad-mouthed. Sometimes they were complimented. But their devotion to Jesus was steady. Steady Eddie. It was just constant. You could just count on it. You could set your watch by their character. Furthermore, Paul painted a picture of lives filled with tension. Listen to the tension. He says, some of you or we rather, he says, we are regarded by some as frauds, even though we're really genuine. We are regarded by some as people with, without standing, though we really do have standing. We are regarded by some as flirting with death, yet very much alive, as materially poor, yet rich in other kinds of wealth. Oh, what a life. Anybody interested in signing up for a life like that? I had to ask myself this week, to what extent is my satisfaction in life conditioned by what others think, say, and do? Maybe you or other people in the larger Christian community. What happens when a fellow Christian stumbles? 
one of my heroes over the years is a man by the name of Bill Hybels, a brother in Christ who currently isn't doing very well. What do we do when somebody stumbles? Do we bail? When God doesn't answer our prayers, do we split? When friends turn against us, do we take it out on God? Maybe this is why we have Job stories in the Bible, to remind us that our admiration of God doesn't depend upon the gifts that he gives us. God is good enough all by himself. God is good enough all by himself to merit our allegiance. Blessed be the name of the Lord, we sometimes sing. God is praiseworthy regardless of our circumstances. Whether we test positive for coronavirus or not, God is praiseworthy. Whether our economy springs back or not, God is praiseworthy. Wouldn't it be wonderful if during this time of global crisis, many would fall at the feet of the Savior? May it fill us all with gratitude and a fresh determination to please God in all that we do. Earlier we asked the question, how do you convince people that you are a God-sent messenger with a God-given message? Words are important. There's nothing wrong with words. Words are good. We need words. God wrote, or he had written, 66 books of the Bible. Words are important, but they may not be enough. They may require the corroboration of a life that behaves like it believes, a life of perseverance, a life of integrity a life of unconditional righteousness. I wondered about that yesterday. I didn't even get into my manuscript. But I do wonder, what will people say about us a month from now or two months from now, wherever the coronavirus uh, uh, crisis goes? What will our conduct during this pandemic convey about our claims to speak for God and to be the people of God? We've talked a lot about preparedness, right? I mean, there's just some basic hygiene that we all ought to be practicing. What is our level of preparedness? What about spiritually? What is our level of preparedness? Are we ready? Are we ready to reach out? I mean, it's not just about me. It's not just about me amassing, you know, enough rolls of toilet paper or hand wipes or whatever it is you think you might need to get through the next little while. There are going to be people, perhaps not far from where you live, maybe the person next door or four houses down, who's going to need something that you are uniquely equipped to give them or to do for them. Maybe I'll need to go and find a little bit more time to do a little more snow shoveling. When we got back from San Diego a few weeks ago, within 24 hours, we got to shovel three times. That was quite a rude awakening. Well, I need to get over my sense of snow shock and maybe look a yard or two over because we have some seniors in our neighborhood who may need some help. I may be just the right person to help them. Maybe there's an errand that I'll be able to run for some of you because you won't be able to. Maybe we'll be able to say a prayer for some people who aren't familiar with the language of prayer. Diane and I recently spent some time with a couple um, that, as far as we can tell, are not believers and they're not doing very well health-wise, and I certainly wouldn't want to see them get infected with the coronavirus. But as we were visiting with them, I just felt like 
we can give you a gift today. We could give you the gift of a prayer, a prayer that showed our love for you and our support for you. And I just sort of, and I I didn't feel totally comfortable. Sometimes when you do something, you don't necessarily feel totally comfortable doing it. But I just said, could we give you a gift tonight? Could we say a prayer for you? And we, we did, right there in the middle of this visit with some people from our neighborhood. And I'm, I'm glad that we did. This is a time for us to stand tall. Belmore has a reputation of standing tall. And I don't know exactly what that will look like, but I'm pretty sure those opportunities will come our way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of good people, for the way that sometimes the best way to figure out how to do what you want us to do is to be able to watch somebody who has learned to do it well. And as we think about Paul and his colleagues, their patient endurance and their lives of integrity and just the consistency in their righteousness, God, we pray that you would help us to follow their example and that you would help us to be alert and attentive in the days ahead. We pray through Christ.